If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 501. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. Support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. It's free to enroll. You get that free class, 10 Myths of American History, when you do enroll, and you get the best deals on new and forthcoming courses. I've got a new course out, Originalist Papers Part 4. As you're getting this, uh, you need to pick that up. I have another one coming out in October. So the people that have been McClanahan Academy subscribers have been getting a special super, super secret coupon through the email list. So you're going to want that, right? So subscribe there. Again, free of charge. Purchase a class that helps support the show, purchase 12 classes that help support the show. Also click on that support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. You can, you can support the show that way. You can also go to Learn True, T-R-U-E, History, learntruehistory.com, or you can click on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Lots of ways to support the show. As always, share the podcast around on social media, rate it wherever you get your podcasts, let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. Yesterday was a 500th episode. We're going to wrap up the week with episode 501. Pretty exciting. And we're going to wrap it up in a way that I think nicely fits with what we talked about yesterday. And this is a piece by Aaron Coleman, Aaron Nathan Coleman, at Law and Liberty. Uh, Dr. Coleman is a great constitutional scholar. He is someone that uh, gets it right. And this, is a, this particular piece is a review of a new book that's out, uh, Peter Hoffer. Peter Hoffer's book, uh, the title of which is Daniel Webster and the Unfinished Constitution. Now, I've talked about Daniel Webster on this show before, and I find Daniel Webster to be an interesting character. Now, what I've mentioned on this show is that perhaps everyone gets it wrong about Webster. And what I mean by that is that some people seem to think that nationalism, as Webster explained it, was the driving force in America and was only undermined by these rascally states' writers, these rascally federalists, and that federalism was the, I'm sorry, that the, that the, the states' rights people were the fly in the ointment, right? They were, they were the people that messed everything up, gummed up the works, that Webster was really speaking for the founding generation. And I mentioned before, what if all that is wrong? What if Webster really was the antithesis of what the founding generation wanted and the others were simply speaking what the founding generation really intended through the Constitution? Now, it doesn't mean there weren't members of the founding generation that would have agreed with Webster. Of course, uh, Webster, uh, in defending several important uh, cases before the Supreme Court, spoke for John Marshall, who, in fact, was just channeling Alexander Hamilton at times. So there's, there's little doubt that there were members of the founding generation that had this much more nationalist, quote-unquote, worldview. And Daniel Webster certainly bought into that only after, though, being a New England sectionalist. You see, 
I think you can make a case that someone like John Marshall and Alexander Hamilton were real nationalists. You could also say that about George Washington. You could say that perhaps about John Adams. You could say it about some members of the founding generation who were nationalists in the purest sense of the word. They wanted a union that benefited all and burdened all equally. And for, In John Marshall's case, he was concerned about Jacobins roaming around the countryside with guillotines and chopping heads off of people like him. That's what he feared. Alexander Hamilton was not really from anywhere in America. He emigrated here later. He didn't really have an attachment to any state. He was in New York. And of course, by marriage, he married into one of the most prominent New York families. But regardless of that, I mean, Hamilton is not really from anywhere. So he was an American in that sense of being a nationalist. You can understand with Hamilton. James Wilson, also from Pennsylvania, but Wilson never really liked Pennsylvania. He, Pennsylvanians always uh, didn't like James Wilson. I mean, a certain faction of the, of the state didn't like James Wilson at all. And so Wilson, the Scotsman, Again, another one who is of relatively recent uh, residence in the American colonies was much more of an American than a Pennsylvanian. George Washington is an interesting character, and I think you could say that about... Uh, and, and Marshall and Washington are both in this way. Uh, Washington was also concerned about some of the things Marshall was concerned about, but Washington, of course, being the leader of the Continental Army, had a much more global perspective on America... And I mean global, not you know, looking at it from different countries, but top-down perspective on America. He was a Virginian, though. You couldn't have George Washington without Virginia. That's without question. And I think you could say the same thing about John Adams. Adams and Washington were very much in the same vein. Adams, of course, from Massachusetts, someone who was uh, much more interested in a union, though. He did call the men who attended the Continental Congress ambassadors. I mean, he was well aware that we had federalism. I mean, that that's certainly true. But Daniel Webster was not that. Daniel Webster was a New England sectionalist who threatened nullification and secession during the War of 1812. So that is Daniel Webster. He only became a nationalist when he figured out that nationalism per se could benefit New England. I think you find this essentially with the New England sectionalists. They all figured this out eventually. Well, you know what? If we push nationalism, that benefits New England. Because at the end of the day, if we get rid of some of the things in the Constitution, that gives the South more power, which would be the Three-Fifths Compromise. At the Hartford Convention, they talked about this. The Three-Fifths Compromise had to go because that gave the South too much power in the government. we got to get rid of that. But why did they want to get rid of that? Well, because they wanted to control the government. You look at some of the proposals that came out of the Hartford Convention, and those were very much in line with New England sectionalism, and Webster supported all of them. So when Webster becomes this born-again nationalist, he's only doing it because it benefits his section. That's all Daniel Webster ever really cared about was New England. More importantly, Massachusetts. He cared about Massachusetts and Massachusetts above all else. That's the charge often made against John C. Calhoun of South Carolina, all he cared about was South Carolina. I think you can make the opposite case of Calhoun. Calhoun always was interested in the greater good of the Union. And by the Union, he meant all the states. 
You see, this is the same Calhoun that in 1816 supported a protective tariff, albeit a slight one, but he favored it, essentially as payback to the New England area for supporting the War of 1812. Now, at that point, New England was on the fence about protectionism. Uh, they had a strong commercial interest, and Webster, in fact, in 1812, had stood up and said that he supports nullification because it was hurting New England commercial interests. But by 1816, you're starting to see much more of an interest in uh, the industrial capacity of the North, and not just that, central banking and other things. So Webster was becoming committed by the 1820s to a tariff. So here's Calhoun already being much more forward-looking and seeing that a tariff could benefit New England and other areas, too, if they wanted to industrialize. Calhoun was not necessarily against federally funded internal improvements. In fact, at one point he said, maybe we need to support these things because it keeps the West in line with the South. Calhoun was not a purist. This is what the old Republicans complained about with Calhoun. They couldn't necessarily trust him all the time. And that was certainly something that um, uh, was, uh, was important to these men. When I talk about the old Republicans, these are the tertium quids who just didn't like John C. Calhoun. So when you look at all of that, right, and we, we take all that into consideration, Calhoun, even to the day he died, said he was a unionist. Webster professed to be one, but he was more of a nationalist than anything else. So when I read this essay by Dr. Coleman on Webster's constitutionalism, and, and he gets it right at the end. I mean, I think that's the important thing to say, but I'm going to go through this. The title is The Devil and Daniel Webster, because this is at, and this is at Law and Liberty. Again, a review of Peter Hoffer's book on Daniel Webster and the Unfinished Constitution. Now, he begins with an anecdote about Daniel Webster being such a good orator that he could even persuade the devil to support his arguments. And that was Daniel Webster. Though, again, did Daniel Webster actually win the debate with John C. Calhoun? The jury is out on that. We know that popular opinion believes that he won the debate against Hayne of South, Robert Hayne of South Carolina. Though Hayne's arguments were stronger, Webster was a better speaker. And... But again, did he actually win that debate either? Because the galleries were certainly believing that Hayne could have won that debate. The press, maybe Hayne won that debate. The only reason we think Daniel Webster won that debate is because of what's happened afterwards and because of the status of Daniel Webster. So let's talk about this review. Coleman says, Hofner maintains that Webster's constitutionalism can only be understood by first acknowledging the unfinished nature of the Constitution. Emerging in recent years as a shibboleth amongst some scholars, such as Jonathan Knapp, the arguments for the unfinished or unfixed Constitution assert that the language and principles underpinning the Constitution remain permanently unfixed. Therefore, it becomes the job of each generation of jurists to define what the Constitution means. Now, that's the idea of a living document, an unfinished document. What I talked about yesterday, how the founding generation thought, well, they could solve all these problems later. Well, you had to do it through amendments. Now, I know that uh, Travinsky points that out, Dr. Travinsky points that out, but certainly um, the, the fact is we have a constitution that is not, uh, that is not unfixed. It is fixed, and Coleman's going to say that later. So this is what Hoffner, Hoffer says. He says, the constitution remains unfinished. The incompleteness of the Constitution is a guarantor of the continued capacity for growth. 
The completed constitution cannot change. It is fixed in time. But the times change, values change, and the needs of a nation and people change. A vibrant constitution accommodates these changes. Now, does that not sound eerily similar to what I talked about yesterday? There is always the amending process, and amendments have changed the Constitution greatly. But seeing the need for an amendment and implementing it is much like reinterpreting the document as it stands. They require recognition that the Constitution is incomplete. Amendment and reinterpretation are the lifeblood of our constitutionalism. The unfinished Constitution ensures the rule of law. This sounds a lot like what uh, Chavinsky was saying. And so... That's the establishment position on the Constitution. And I think that they really don't know what they're talking about when they say these things. They don't understand that the Constitution was finished in 1788 when it was ratified. That was the document. Now, of course, you amend it, and so that changes it. Those amendments become part of it. But remember, the Bill of Rights, the point of that, was to prevent misconstruction So these were things that they thought were already there. But they wanted to ensure that there would not be misconstruction. So in so many ways, the Bill of Rights was not altering the Constitution. It was embellishing the Constitution. It was strengthening the original Constitution. In short, the idea of the unfinished Constitution is a scholarly euphemism for the living Constitution. As Hoffner, Hoffer convincingly reveals, Webster's attempts to complete the Constitution did not occur in legislative halls. Rather, they emerge in his winning arguments in some of the most important Supreme Court cases in American history. Hoffer insists that Webster's constitutionalism attempted to answer the three great questions of the incomplete Constitution. Federalism, the boundary between public interest and private right, and the relationship between law and politics during the early republic. But I think federalism was answered. This was answered with the Tenth Amendment. It's just that nationalists kept agitating. You see, as the opponents of the document said they would, but this was the finished part of it. His answers, moreover, advanced a nationalist reading of the Constitution. Webster did not seek to destroy the sovereignty of New Hampshire or Massachusetts any more than that of Carolina. He simply wanted the federal government to have absolute control of the powers explicitly granted to it. This is what That was Hoffner's words. The states retained elements of sovereignty, but the supremacy clause restrained their actions. Thus, as percolated through the writings of John Marshall, Webster answered the question of federalism by fixing broad congressional authority over contracts, interstate commerce, and a generous reading of the Necessary and Proper Clause, while still maintaining a union of states. This nationalist, Coleman says, this nationalist federalism naturally affected how Webster answered the unfinished Constitution over the line between public interests and private rights. Webster believed the federal constitution, particularly its prohibition against impairing the obligation of contracts, protected the individual property rights against the invasions of partisan state legislatures, often bent on fueling momentary wishes of the public at the expense of enshrined rights. Finally, and to Hoffer most importantly, the protection of private rights could not come from any political body, whether state or federal. Political self-interest proved too strong. Instead, Webster believed the Supreme Court, with its being more removed from political passions, bore the responsibility of protecting the rights of individuals and explaining the nature of the Constitution and boundaries of federal power. With these arrangements finally fleshed out in constitutional jurisprudence, Webster believed union, liberty, and the rule of law would thrive. Now, 
This argument that, that Hoffer's making here, and of course he's saying Webster believed in, is nothing different than what some members of the founding generation said, even during the ratification process. They said it. The Constitution would be that final, uh, sorry, the Supreme Court would be that final arbiter on the Constitution. There would have to be boundaries set between the states and the federal government. And Webster is just saying those boundaries, the, the federal government cannot be, uh, those boundaries cannot be eroded away by the states. And I think you could have found members of the founding generation who argued the exact same thing. But then you would also found members of the founding generation that disagreed with the role of the federal courts in this process. So that becomes a major rub. But if you look at the original intent, I think you're going to find more of the founding generation would have supported judicial review, what we call judicial review, than opposed it. And so that was, and this was argued. I mean, look, John Marshall stood up in the Virginia Ratifying Convention and defended judicial review. So did Alexander Hamilton. John Dickinson was a little, was a little suspect. He didn't really believe in it. And those are the letters of Fabius, which are good letters, which I cover in my Originalist Papers course. Uh, but certainly there were members of the founding generation that believed in judicial review, but they did not think the states could be coerced in their political capacity. They did not think that the federal government had a negative over state law unless it violated Article I, Section 10. That was it. And there's a whole lot that's not in Article I, Section 10. A whole lot. So then... This is where the piece gets really good, when Coleman lets Hoffer have it. Had Hoffer stopped with his examination of Webster's constitutional principles and the underappreciated degree of influence upon constitutional law and jurisprudence, the book would have been a masterclass of historical scholarship. Hoffer more than establishes that Webster proved a much more critical constitutional thinker than previous scholarship has admitted and influenced constitutional law in ways that scholars have neglected. I mean, look, I've always thought Daniel Webster was important. And this is why I've covered him, I think, at least once, if not twice, on the podcast. I know I covered him. I think I've covered him twice, though. Alas, his argument that Webster viewed his legal arguments and success as completing the three great questions of the incomplete Constitution falls flat. It smacks too much of injecting contemporary academic constitutional thought into the mind of Webster. I agree, 100%. Even as he appreciates the great lawyer's efforts, Hoffer concludes that Webster could no more finish it than anyone in his generation because asking courts to do what cannot be done is a vain enterprise. Yet Hoffer does not prove that Webster himself ever believed he was trying to fix undefined constitutional boundaries. Instead, his thorough research suggests that Webster's court and Senate orations, which he filled with historical examples and allusions, sought to convince his audience that his nationalist interpretation of the Constitution, and not those defending state sovereignty, became fixed at the moment of the Constitution's creation. This is important. What Webster is arguing is that his interpretation of the Constitution was the founding interpretation of the Constitution. We know that's not true. We know it's not true because we have enough evidence to show otherwise that the federal interpretation of the Constitution one out over the national interpretation of the Constitution, hence the Tenth Amendment, hence the promises made, hence the arguments made in favor of federalism. All of these things show that originalism is federalism. It is a federal republic. And, and Webster is the fly in the ointment. 
the real fly in the ointment because he's the one pushing an idea that was outright rejected by the ratifiers. Webster believed he defended the Constitution as it was rather than as it, want, as it wanted to be. The Hoffer view, that Hoffer views Webster as having failed in his attempt to affix a nationalist interpretation of the Constitution, which is debatable, may have more to do with the historical, political, and constitutional strength of Jeffersonian constitutionalism than it does with the modern notion that one cannot fix what is supposedly unfixable. So, I mean, again, here Coleman's saying it's the jury's out that Webster actually failed. We have a nationalist interpretation. That's one, that's Joseph's story. You go into law school, and if you're going to take originalism, you're going to read Joseph's story and John Marshall. This is what you're going to read. You might get the Federalist essays, but are you going to read Fabius? Are you going to read Marcus? Are you going to read a Freeman? Are you going to read any of the speeches from the ratifying conventions that would oppose, in some ways, what people are saying? Are you going to read any of that? That's why I created the Originalist Papers. I would love for that, and that's going to be a book, by the way. It's going to come out in book form. I'm saying this now, hopefully in September sometime. I don't have it 100% done yet, but that's what I'm going to be doing. And so um, you're going to want that. You're definitely going to want that book uh, because it's going to be better than the Federalist. You've got some of the Federalists in it, but it's better than that. Finally, the argument for an unfixed constitution is a curious one. The book's argument hinges on accepting it as fact. To aid readers, Hofner offers the metaphor of the surveyor, in which the Constitution is a textual landscape and judges are the surveyors. Landmarks such as the Contracts Clause, the Necessary and Proper Clause, and the Principle of Federalism do dot that textual terrain. Between those landmarks will be unmarked spaces that require mapping out. It is the role of the surveyor, the Supreme Court, to map out that landscape. <clears throat> but this metaphor misses the mark, and I agree with Coleman when he says that. A surveyor cannot claim to have discovered previously unknown tracts of land and already established terrain. He must examine the terrain and its landmarks as he inherited it. He cannot transmogrify the ground to fit contemporary desires. Nor can the surveyor claim that a textual landscape is something that it is not. A forest is not an ocean because the owners now want oceanfront property in the middle of the woodlands. Nor can he alter landmarks if they are in the way. Landmarks, by definition, are fixed positions. Surveyors merely observe, apply, and occasionally clarify, not alter or redraw the location of boundary lines in the pre-existing territory. Suppose surveyors could fundamentally change the landscape every time they surveyed that land. In that case, the land is no longer stable, and it becomes difficult, if not impossible, to live prosperously on that land. The same is true for the Constitution. I like that metaphor that he just gave. I mean, look... The Constitution was fixed. It was fixed after Philadelphia, sort of, but it really was fixed after the ratifying conventions when all of these public documents, speeches, pamphlets, essays, defined what the document was going to mean in relation to federalism, for example. This was very clearly defined. Very clearly defined. If it didn't say you can do it, you can't do it. The Necessary and Proper Clause was distorted by Webster and John Marshall and Alexander Hamilton. Because Hamilton knew full well, I mean, where that comes from, of course, is McCulloch v. Maryland, which was the uh, case on the Second Bank of the United States. But Hamilton knew full well the bank was not constitutional. He knew it because he and Madison, as I mentioned yesterday, he and Madison had a long chat about it, and they knew they shouldn't put it in there, and it would not be constitutional. 
Coleman says the same is true for the Constitution. Even if elements of the Constitution require mapping out or liquidation, as Madison called it in Federalist 37, this does not mean the entire edifice remains fluid or subject to constantly changing, constant change by courts. Nor does it mean that judges, Hoffer surveyors, can alter the constitutional terrain or landmarks because times have changed. That is arbitrariness, the opposite of order, liberty, and the rule of law. A fixed constitution, which solidified the predominance of its meaning and intention at its adoption, provides the stability demanded by the rule of law. 100% true. What did the people say who wrote it said it means? That's where you go from there. You can't change that. This is what the people said it means when they wrote it. It's all you're saying if you're an originalist. We're just going to go back to what they said it means. Nor are amendments a sign that the Constitution is incomplete. Using Hoffer's metaphor, amendments are part of the constitutional terrain. Whereas surveyor judges have no legitimate authority to change the terrain or alter the landmarks, amendments offer the landowners, the people through the congressional and state legislatures, to rearrange their property as they best see fit. Well, I agree. I mean, amendments are the proper way to change the Constitution, not the courts, which essentially is what Coleman is saying here and what Hoffer is getting to. Well, the courts can decide these things. And I think that Travinsky would probably agree that the court should be involved in this. And with the arguments she makes, well, I can't wear pants and I can't do this and all this stuff. Okay, well, I mean, what you're saying is that there should be a living constitution, and what the history shows is that that's not the case. There shouldn't be a living constitution. Coleman concludes, readers will need to ignore Hoffer's use of the past to defend modern constitutional theory. If they do, then Daniel Webster and the unfinished constitution should convince them to move beyond Webster the orator and consider him as one of the early republic's most important constitutional thinkers. Overlooking that issue, however, might be as difficult as beating the devil in court. So a great conclusion. I mean, I think that, again, uh, Coleman is right on the mark here. This is what she, and this is a, a cautionary tale about histories. Look, I have biases. Um, I'm very open about them. The problem with most historians is they're not. It's subtle. And you have to know who they are and where they are to know what their biases really are. And then once you get to that, you can really start diving into what they're saying. Because even the, the choices of subjects that they take on, I mean, these are things that are often driven by their own personality, their own self-interests, uh, their own views on things. It's often driven by that. So histori historians are not uh, objective. Histories aren't objective. They're all subjective. I remember being an undergraduate and having professors tell us, I mean, know who these people are before you start writing about it. If you're going to write a book review about a, a particular uh, a book, find out who the author is first. If you can do that, if you can find out, well, maybe this guy is a, is a card-carrying communist, right? So is he going to write something that's in line with the Marxist dialectic when uh, he, he writes a history? Probably so. Or maybe this guy is of the, of the court, right? And so he's going to write a pretty laudatory view of the court in whatever country you're talking about. Well, I mean, we know these things. We know history is biased, so we should be on the lookout for that and aware of it when we start doing our research. And in this particular case, I mean, knowing these biases helps us. Histories are biased. Hoffer is biased. I'm biased. Travinsky's biased. Coleman's biased. 
But knowing your biases helps you get through these things, and it helps you read these books in a different way. If you know the historian's bias, then you can look at it and say, okay, well, maybe this isn't right. Maybe, maybe, I, but maybe there's something good in the book where you'd want to get it anyways. And I think that's, that's also a part of this as well. You can find material that you want to pick out and read, and uh, you may not get all of the books on this particular subject because you're not going to like all of them, but you may get a number of them. All right. All that said about history being biased, and this is a great piece from Daniel Webster. I loved doing this week. We got to episode 500. Thanks for being on board with it. I'll see you next week on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.